listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Midtown. This is our sermon series on the Gospel of Luke. Peace be with you. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, your people, we need a word from you this morning. And so, Father, we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would give us a word and that you would transform us by the Spirit as we hear that word, that you would open our hearts to receive it by faith, to receive the call to follow Jesus. And Father, give me the strength by the Spirit to preach that word, to lift my voice and preach to the glory of Christ and to the shame of the devil. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The New Testament uses multiple expressions to describe the call of following Jesus on a path of faithful discipleship. The Apostle Paul uses the analogies of a fight or a race to describe the Christian life. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus narrates the Christian life as a walk through a narrow gate which is hard to find and through which few people enter. This morning's text teaches us that the Christian life is a a calling to devote ourselves to follow Jesus. It's an invitation to follow Christ. The main point of this text, brothers and sisters, it's simple. Jesus calls us to follow him on the path of faithful discipleship. Now, when we think about calling... We should think of it at least in two ways in the New Testament. Number one, we have what's called an effectual calling. 
That's the calling whereby God, through the Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, will open our hearts, will create faith in dead sinners, so that we would respond to the gospel with faith and repentance. That's the effectual calling. But another calling is called an outward calling or a general calling, where, whereby we, we hear the outward call of the gospel, the outward invitation that Jesus presents to us to follow him as his disciples. And that's the calling, I think, we see in this text. Our text connects with and builds upon the text Pastor Jamal preached last week in chapter 4, verses 31 through 44. There, Luke includes miracle stories to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God. He exercised a demon out of a man, and he healed Peter's mother-in-law from a severe fever. And then Luke concludes chapter 4, stating that Jesus went to preach the gospel of the kingdom in cities in Judea. In chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, Jesus is back in Galilee. So I want to summarize the story and, and preach the point, all right? He states in verse 1 that Jesus was preaching the Word of God, and that the crowds were, were pressing upon Him as He preached it by the lake of Gennesaret. And He saw in verses 2 through 7, two boats by the lake that two fishermen brought to shore after they finished their work. But verse 3, Jesus tells Peter he's going to enter into his boat, and he asks Peter to, to row offshore so that he could sit down to preach to the crowds the Word of God from the boat. And then in verse 4, Jesus tells Peter to take his boat a bit into the deep so that he could lower his nets there for a catch of fish. Now keep in mind that Peter, contrary to popular opinions about him, was a very smart businessman. He knew how to fish. He knew how to make money from the fishing industry. He knew when and where to fish. That's why they were fishing all night, the best time then to fish. No disrespect to Jesus, but Jesus has not spent his life making a living from the fishing industry. Sure, he heals the sick, he casts out demons, he raises the dead, but he's no fisherman, perhaps Peter thought. In verse 5, Peter responds humbly, I think, to Jesus and says in verse 5, Master, we have not caught any fish here, although we have labored all night long. Now by we... Peter means we fishermen, one of which Jesus was not. But Peter knows Jesus well enough by this point to know that he should listen to his recommendation. He watched Peter, or he watched Jesus cast out demons. He watched Jesus heal his mother-in-law. So he responds in verse 5, and he says, notice it, because of your word. You catch that? Now, come on now. You can talk to me. Did you catch that? Because of your word, I will lower the nets 
for a catch of fish in the place where you say, even though we've labored already all night. So in verse 6, they lowered the nets and they caught a large multitude of fish to the point that the nets began to tear. Let's reflect upon this verse for a moment. Try to imagine the complete and utter joy Peter had when they caught a large catch of fish after having labored all throughout the night without catching anything. Now they could eat. Now they could make money. Now they could provide for their families. Because the catch was so large, verse 7, that Peter and his other business partners summoned their other business partners to help them with the catch. And it began to, to sink their boats because their nets were bursting with fish. Contrary to the demons in chapter 4, whom Jesus rebuked, Peter responds to Jesus in the right way. He falls at Jesus' knees. You see it there? And he says, Lord, please get away from me because I am a sinful man. He responds to Jesus the same way Isaiah responds to Yahweh, doesn't he? You know that text in Isaiah 6? In Isaiah 6, the Lord revealed his holiness to Isaiah, revealed his glory to him. And Isaiah said, Woe am I, for I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, and I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glory, the holiness of the Lord. When Isaiah saw a vision of God, he realized he was a sinner. Jesus reveals a vision of Yahweh to Peter when he performs that miracle. Jesus is the Son, but he's Yahweh the second person of the Trinity. And Peter is aware of his sin. And by the way, this is good news for Peter. It's good news for us because Jesus loves sinners. Luke teaches over and over again. He, he came not to heal the sick, but to, the, the weak, but to heal the sick. Let me restate that. That came out all the wrong way. <laughs> He came not to heal the healthy, but to heal the sick. Amen. Amen. Get it right, preacher. Get it right. So y'all got to talk back to me now. Tell me to make it plain. Luke teaches us also, he came to call sinners to repent and believe. But Peter in verses 9 and 10, he's afraid. He's seized with astonishment and fear. It took hold of him because he, he saw a vision of Yahweh and, and Jesus, and, and he's overwhelmed with trepidation and, and fear because of the glory that God reveals through his son Jesus in the miracle of catching these fish. Saints, I want to linger here for a moment. Sometimes when we follow Jesus, he reveals his glory to us in overwhelming ways, but we fear him. 
And we let fear of Jesus drive us away from faithfulness to him. We do this for all sorts of reasons. Maybe because of our hyper-awareness of our inadequacies and our weaknesses. Or maybe because we struggle with insecurities or the imposture syndrome. Sometimes following Jesus causes us to fear because we lose sight of who he is and how much he loves us. Jesus, brothers and sisters, is our Lord and Savior. He is the Son of God. And oh, as the old hymn says, how he loves you and me. He calls us to trust him. He calls us to follow him in all areas of our lives. He, he calls us to fall at his feet and to worship him. He calls us to entrust every area of our lives to him, even those areas we think we know better than Jesus. Sometimes following Jesus will lead us down a path of suffering. And sometimes it leads us down the path of deep and unspeakable joy. As the Apostle Paul says, the Christian life is a life of sorrow, but always rejoicing. Jesus calls us to follow him, to trust him, and to watch him display his greatness to us through his faithfulness to us. Do you believe that this morning? He calls us to follow him in the normal rhythms of our lives. He calls us to follow him when things are not certain, when things are not safe, and when life is not clear. Jesus calls us to follow him when we are afraid of the outcome, of how things might develop if we follow him on the path of faithful discipleship. He calls us to be his disciples even when we experience deep and unbearable pain. Jesus does not call all of us into vocational Christian ministry. He does not call all of us into vocational Christian ministry, but he calls every Christian to be his disciples wherever we are in our lives. Can I lean here a little bit more, folks? If we would be honest with ourselves this morning, we'd admit that some of us are afraid to step out in faith and answer the call to follow Jesus on the path of discipleship because of what that call might mean for our lives. Many of you are as I am when it comes to answering the call to follow Jesus and to step out in faith. We stick our toe in the water to make sure it's not too cold or too deep before we take a step of faith and follow our risen Lord. Answering the call to follow Jesus is a step of faith. It is not a step into foolishness, silliness, stupidity, or unwise choices. 
A step of faith is we trust Jesus by accepting his call upon our lives to follow him even when we are not certain of where that call to follow him as a disciple may lead. Oh, yes, we should count the cost and ask ourselves whether following Jesus is worth it before we follow him. But Jesus calls all of us to follow him, whether we want to follow him or not. He calls us to follow him to care for grieving saints. He calls us to lift each other up when we are down, to strengthen one another when we are weak. He calls us to love one another. He calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. He calls us to serve the body of Christ. He calls us to weep with one another when we weep and to rejoice with one another when we rejoice. He calls us to leave the childish and petty behaviors behind and to work for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He calls us to invite as many people as we can to follow Jesus. He calls us to be faithful employees, to be faithful parents, to be faithful spouses. He calls us to care for the welfare of our city. He calls us to follow him wherever he goes, even if he leads us to the glory of the Mount of Transfiguration or to the agony of the crucifixion. Maybe Jesus' call to follow him scares us. Can I be honest? It scares me. When we hear his voice to follow him, we choose not to run to it, but often to flee from it. We'd rather go about our lives alone, trusting our own sinful devices, instead of trusting in Christ and yielding to the lordship of Jesus our crucified, risen, and exalted Lord. Y'all still with me? We turn to sin, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness, or God forbid to the latest fad. And we ignore things like prayer, the Word of God, the church, and the greatness of Jesus. Instead of taking steps of faith to give our lives to him and submit to him, watch this, all things that we want, all things that we have, and all things that we desire to be under his lordship. But brothers and sisters, here's some good news. You want some good news? Be of good cheer. Because Jesus invites us to follow him. Notice the last part of verse 10. Jesus says to Peter, after he fell to the ground, seized with fear, I love these words, do not fear. From this point forward, I will make you a fisher of men. Do not fear. In Revelation chapter 1, Jesus says a similar thing to John the Apostle. When he sees a vision of the risen Christ, John falls down like a dead man because he's petrified 
But Jesus touches him and says to him in verses 17 and 18, Do not fear. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen? And I have the keys. Watch this. I have the keys of death and Hades. Brothers and sisters, we all have fears. I have fears. And and maybe we are so paralyzed with fear that we choose to live our lives in isolated bubbles instead of taking steps of faith to follow Christ. A great deal of my time, and if you'd be honest, a great deal of your time is spent worrying about all things that could go wrong in our lives. And even worrying about those things that would have gone wrong if we made a different choice. We rightly worry about our spouses, our kids, our friends. We worry about members of our church. If we're single, we worry if we'll get married. If we we're married, we worry, we worry about our spouse. The worries and the endless, the fears are endless. And these fears, y'all feel this, don't you? These fears can be suffocating, can't they? paralyzing and cause us to sink into despair to the point that we refuse to live by faith and follow Jesus because we fear what may come if we answer his call to live by faith. Some of us fear life. Some of us fear death. But Jesus says to us the same thing he said to Peter in verse 10. Here it is again. Do not fear. He calls Peter to trust him and not to fear. And now, a word of clarity here. When Jesus tells Peter, don't fear, I do not think he's rebuking him. In chapter 4, Jesus rebukes the demons. The demons cried out and said he's the son of God, and Jesus said, shut up. That's my paraphrase. When he says to Peter, don't fear, I think he's talking more like this. Peter, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of me, Peter. I love you. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to make you part of my business. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. I'm going to teach you how to do it. Yet times will be tough. Suffering will come. Don't be afraid. I love you, Peter. Saints, if you fear today, if you're battling with fear, struggling to live by faith and not by sight, Jesus invites you to bring your fears to him. And by the way, I do not think fear is always sinful. I don't think anxiety is sinful necessarily either. I'll give you one example. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he is agonizing with fear, knowing that he's about to absorb the wrath of God. Yet he does not have sin. And he pleads with the Lord, Lord, if there's any other way that these people can be saved, remove this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. Through his fear, he had faith. He had confidence in his father's vision for his life. 
So if you fear this morning, and I have fears in my life I'm going to die struggling with, the invitation is not to feel guilty. The invitation is to bring your fears to Jesus. Faithfulness to Jesus does not mean your life will be without fear. Because we live in a fallen world, we will have fears. Answering the call to follow Jesus includes walking with Jesus when we are afraid and relying upon him to carry us through our fears as we choose to live by faith and not by sight. Y'all still following me? Now notice what he says in verse 17. After Jesus spoke these words, the text says they followed him. They docked their boats, they left their nets, and they followed Jesus. They became his business partners in the work of calling men and women to follow him in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think they altogether abandoned their fishing business. They still needed to make a living and care for their families. They still needed to pay their bills, even as they followed Jesus in the business of making disciples. Yes, the disciples is true, isn't it? Yes, the disciples left everything to follow Jesus. In fact, they say in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus, we've left everything. What are we going to get in the kingdom? And he says, you're going to get it all back. Abundantly better than everything you left. On the one hand, Jesus and the disciples depended upon the generosity of others to support their ministry. But on the other hand, they still had to eat and provide support for their families. So although it is true, isn't it, that God does call some people, doesn't he? He calls some people to leave their careers and to go follow him full time in service of making disciples of other people. But he does not call most people to do that. He calls most of us to be faithful where we are, in our jobs, in our homes, So the takeaway, I think, is, the takeaway from this verse is the disciples prioritized the call of following Jesus above all. They prioritized the kingdom. This does not mean, hear this again, that God calls everybody to leave their careers and to follow him in the same way. Moreover, it doesn't mean that God calls everybody into full-time vocational ministry. He doesn't call most of us into full-time vocational ministry. But he calls all of us as believers to be faithful to him. So maybe you're wondering, how do your skills, how do your gifts fit within God's calling for you to serve him? Well, I think Jesus is a perfect example of this. He knew about fish. He knew about bread. He knew how to tell stories with the best of them. He knew how to make money in business. And perhaps he was skilled in carpentry. He does not abandon these skills to invite people to follow him. But he utilized these skills and his knowledge of them as he caused people to follow him. Y'all with me on this point? He uses these 
skills as a means by which to call people to himself. As far as we know, Jesus, as I've said before, did not train at a famous rabbinic school. He grew up learning the scriptures in his home from his faithful parents. As he possibly worked with his earthly father, Joseph, in the business of carpentry or construction. Maybe going to work with his earthly father is where Jesus learned about building a house on a solid foundation. Y'all know that metaphor? He used that as a means by which to talk about following him. Jesus did not live a monastic life. He knew the importance of developing trades, skills to take care of himself and those who followed him. And he invited them to follow him on the path of faithful disciple. Jesus is a perfect example of faithfulness. He did not, hear this, he did not live with a mindset of a division between the holy calling and the secular calling. Instead, his model was be faithful to God in all areas of your life and use your God-given gifts, use your God-given trades trades as a means by which, yes, to take care of yourselves, but also to shine light into darkness to build the kingdom of God. Amen? Amen. So I got two applications with 12 minutes. So let's go. One, (laughs) Jesus calls every Christian to be faithful disciples where we live, work, worship, and play. Brothers and sisters, God can use you where you are right now as a faithful disciple of Christ in the vocations in which he has called you to serve. Some of us, as I've said, are called to full-time vocational ministry, but most of us are not. Those called into ministry are not the only ones called to serve Jesus. I do not believe in a division between the so-called holy calling and the secular calling. If you are a Christian, Jesus wants you to be salt and light wherever you are. He wants your vocation, your calling, to be in the service of him. There are many diverse callings and trades and gifts and skills in this church. Your calling to follow Jesus is an invitation to follow him on the narrow and difficult path of discipleship in every area of your lives, including your work, whether that's work in the home or outside the home. So I encourage you, consider your Christian life as a a calling to serve Christ faithfully right now, where you are and whatever you're doing. But I'm going to say a word specifically for those of us who are in the workforce. There are all kinds of work. I know that. But I want to focus for those of, those of us who work outside the home in the context of the workforce. View your vocation as a Christian calling to serve Christ. As long as you're in that role. Even if you don't like your job. Jesus invites you to think creatively about how you can wisely use your God-given vocation to glorify Christ by providing a service that can help people. It brings glory to Jesus when Christians do good work. 
because that's a sign of the future restoration that is to come. Amen? And if you do good work in your space where you work, the Lord might use you in time as you build credibility as an employee to be a means by which you can have a gospel conversation off the clock at your house about why it is you're working the way you are for the glory of Christ. Your vocational gifts, your experience, your social networks, your trades, your relationships, your street cred will open opportunities for you to make an impact for the kingdom and for Christ in ways that other people with other callings and other gifts cannot. There are spaces that I could never get into because of my employer as a professor at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I love my job. But there are certain spaces that would be like, nah, we don't want you in our space. But there are other folks in this room, y'all can get in those spaces as you use your skill, your trade to bring salt and light for the glory of Christ. And maybe God will use you eventually to form a relationship to invite people in those spaces to follow King Jesus. So saints, let's pray. So ask the Lord. Oh, the sermon's not over yet. This is a transition point. I got eight more minutes left. Ask the Lord to show us ways we can faithfully follow Jesus, where we live, work, worship, and play. But a key is stay in your lane. <laughs> Don't be fulfilling a call to which you haven't been called. My wife knows this story. This is why I'm going to tell it. She doesn't know I'm going to tell it now, but she knows the story. Sorry, honey. When I was in college, I was single, and I needed two hours to graduate college. I was a senior. And my advisor said, well, why don't you sing in the chapel choir? I said, yeah, that'd be great. Great place to meet girls. I was single. I was single. And I can graduate. But for some reason, I thought just because I sang for one hour practicing for chapel, and then saying another hour in chapel, I thought for some reason I was called to do special music. Y'all know what special music is? <laughs> special music is what some churches used to do before the sermon. You'd have a solo before the sermon. I did a special music at my home church on a Sunday night. It was a colossal, categorical failure. Why? Because I'm not called to be in music ministry. <laughs> Just because I sang for two hours in chapel choir? Stay in your lane. If you're not called to preach, don't preach. If you're not gifted in math, don't be a math teacher. If you can't listen well, don't be a counselor. Hear this. Hear this. Hear this. God matches the calling with the gift. Now, you got to hone that gift. You got to work on it. You got to study, prepare. I started preaching 27 years ago. My sermons were awful. They're not that better now, but they're better than they were 27 years ago. And I've honed it. I've worked on it. I'm trying. I take correction. I get feedback. I think I'm called, maybe, you can be the determining factor in that, to preach. But if you're not called to preach, please do us all the favor and don't preach. Several years ago, I heard somebody teach, not here, no church, I was a member, on a Wednesday night, and it was the most horrible teaching I've ever heard in my life. He wasn't called. 
And there's no shame in not pursuing something to do, that you're not called to do. So I have eight things I'd like to give you to give you some insight as to how to discern your calling. But I'm not going to give all eight to you. Because I only got six minutes left. I'll give you two. One, pray. Ask the Lord, what are you calling me to do? And then talk to people who know you well, who've watched your life, who see your skills, who see your giftedness, and ask them, what are some things that you see in my life that you think I'm gifted to do? And then consider that. And then I'll repeat the first thing and then pray some more. Of course, if you're a teenager or a child, you first talk to your parents after you pray. And after you talk to your parents, you talk some more to the Lord. As you're seeking to discern what it is the Lord might be calling you to do. There are no bench warmers in the kingdom of God, brothers and sisters. There are no worthless disciples of Christ. There is no dead weight. Every disciple is valuable. Every calling inside the home, outside the home. A valuable calling for a Christian in service of Christ. And each of us has a role to play in this church. Ask yourselves, how can you use your God-given gifts and skills to bless this congregation? And don't just wait for the pastors to seek you out. Seek us out. Seek the staff out. Seek the leaders out and ask them, say, you know, I have a gift. I have a particular set of skills that God's given to me. Can you use these gifts and these skills in this space for the glory of Jesus Christ? That's the first application. Second application. There's a call for unbelievers today. If you're not a Christian, Jesus is calling you right now at the sound of my voice to turn from your sin and to give your life to Jesus. It's really simple. God offered Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins. And he raised him from the dead. And if you turn from your sins right now, you can be saved. If you make the decision to follow Jesus, you can be saved. That's the decision I made when I was 17 years old. I didn't know what the Lord was going to do. I was scared. There were no Christians in my family. But God took a friend who was 17, who loved Jesus, and he used that tragedy as a means by which to bring me to faith. And all I knew was I was a sinner and I want to be free from my sin. So I simply, over the telephone, with my, the man who became my pastor, cried out to Jesus and asked him to save me, and he did. And if you turn from your sin right now, he'll save you. As Pastor Josh suggested, Jesus is coming back, ready or not. Death is coming, ready or not. You can give your life to Jesus right now and be free and follow him on the path of discipleship. We'd love to talk with you right over here in this connect room. Linger around after the service and talk to one of us about what it means to follow Christ. Christians, for us, may we devote ourselves afresh today, renew ourselves today by the power of the Spirit to follow him, to take all of our cares to him, to decide to follow Jesus. No turning back. Amen? Amen? No turning back.
pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.